Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is The Vandalists by Natalia Teodredu. The story was originally published in Spark, a creative anthology, volume 4, as the grand prize winner of Spark Contest 3. A Portuguese translation is forthcoming in Hyperpulp. Originally from Greece, author Natalia Teodoridou is now based in Portsmouth in the UK. She is currently recovering from a PhD in Media and Cultural Studies in the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Her work has appeared in Clark's World, Crossed Genres, Strange Horizons, and elsewhere. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit www.nataliateodredu.com or just say hi on Twitter, where her handle is at Natalia underscore Theodore. The story is read by Podcastle regular Ian Stewart, a writer slash performer slash voice artist slash poet slash dog walker. The Vandalists by Natalia Thethorithu It is said that the signature started appearing in the city a few years prior to the main events. On manhole covers, on factory chimneys in the suburbs, on telephone booths. Some, in the wave of poeticism that ensued, claimed they even saw it written at the back side of the sea and next to the seams of the sky. According to several witnesses, the letters shone, and this may account for the widely reported impression that the yellow paint had dripped directly from the sun. All reports, however, agree that the words were always the same. The Vandalists. Initially, the signature appropriated pre-existing architectural elements of the city, as if the Vandalists assume responsibility for its deformity or ugliness. Various scholars rushed to brand the Vandalists a terrorist group, but they failed to ask the critical questions underlying their assumption. What was the terror, and who was terrorised? What these critics did not realise until it was perhaps too late is that by naming the Vandalists' actions terrorism, they identified the city itself as terror. The Vandalists are thus the first group that managed to turn the system against itself. The second phase in the history of the group finds the signature on new, absurd additions to the cityscape. Here, the group's actions can loosely be included in the city guerrilla movement, transforming the urban environment in small ways that unveil its hostile, absurd or inhumane nature. The city is stripped from its civilised pretensions and revealed as jungle, a place of chaos. The third phase has escaped adequate documentation. Even the connection of the Vandalists with the most recent events has been impossible to confirm. What follows should be seen, then, as a sustained speculation at best. Peter It always starts the same way. First, a tiny feeling of unease. You breathe. Then, the sweating. Your forehead, your palms, your back. It's from the heat, you say. I should open a window. But the windows here are not designed to open. You turn on the air conditioning until it's blasting polar temperatures in your office. You breathe. You try to imagine you're inhaling fresh air. You're choking. 
Your hands are trembling slightly. Then your cheekbones go numb. Your lips, too. Your palms. Your field of vision is narrow. It turns into a long, narrow, dark tunnel. Through the tunnel you try to find the pills you've never admitted you keep in the top right drawer of your desk. You find them. You swallow, too. Now the walls are shaking. A flame flares up right in the centre of your chest and spreads to your entire body. You enter the tunnel and search for the door. You find it. You're looking for the escape exit. You find that one, too. Thank you, you say to no one in particular. You climb the stairs to the roof. Your breathing is quick, your head light, like a feather, you think, because that's the first cliché that comes into your mind, and you love your clichés. Treasure them. The buzz in your ears is blocking out all other sound. You open the roof door and emerge under the blinding sky. Your jacket feels tight. You take it off. Your tie's flapping round your neck like a noose. You loosen it. You walk to the edge of the roof. You bend your knee and plant it squarely on the cement. The thought crosses your mind to jump, just so you can escape this panic. But with that thought, the buzz recedes. Through the tunnel you look at the city sprawled under your feet, a forest made of concrete. The wind freezes the sweat against your skin. You think you hear the distant roar of a lion. Then a human voice comes from the vast space behind you. Mr Lowell? Your field of vision gradually expands. Your breathing is turning back to normal. Your heart decides to stay in your chest for now. The voice is closer now. Peter, are you all right? You turn towards the voice. A young woman is looking at you, her eyebrows close together in a worried frown. She's holding your jacket. She tries to bring back an air of professionalism, but you can still make out the concern in her features, and a hint of pity, perhaps. Your wife would like to speak with you. On the phone, she says, and then leaves quietly to give you some time to save whatever is left of your dignity. Hi. Where were you? On the roof. On the roof? Yes. You breathe as soundlessly as you can. What do you want, Tanya? Money. Not me, the kid. How much? I don't know. Ask him. The buzzing sound threatens to come back. If you don't know, why did you call me? Why didn't he call himself? Don't raise your voice. I'm not. OK. I'm sorry. I'll call and ask him. Not now. He's at school. OK. Later. OK. Bye. Will you be home tonight, you almost asked. But she hung up. She fucking hung up. You put down the phone and look at your desk, and then you see your reality as a sum of shiny surfaces. The windows of the skyscraper where you've chosen to invest your life is nothing but a vertical glowing surface. The floor that separates you from the dots working beneath you, a horizontal surface. The desk cold and flat under your elbows. The walls, four identical surfaces, an icy box all of your own to contain your warm, soft body. A light knock on the door and the roof girl is incoming. She enters your box, legs first. Yes, you think the legs enter first, followed by the head, 
the left shoulder, the belly, then the left eye, like a cubist painting in slow motion, and the last to enter is her smile, white teeth, perfect on perfect lips. I hope I'm not interrupting. You don't speak. Only lean on your elbows and against the surface of your desk, and your head on your hands and your shoulders rising and falling slightly, but you don't know why. The girl comes closer and puts a consoling forearm on your back, and with nothing intervening, you find yourself fucking her against the desk like there's no tomorrow, like that, with the cliché on the tip of your tongue, and at the same time you could have sworn you've seen this girl before. And then she puts her clothes back on, buttoning her little buttons one by one from tip to toe, and then she lights a clichéd cigarette and says, "'It's all going to hell.' There are incidents all over the city. It's crazy. Have you heard that? They say dogs become wolves again and eat their owners. Have you heard that? You can't smoke in here, you say. And she looks at you and laughs, as if you'd said something funny. The wheel under your fingers feels hard and leathery and cold. You're staring at the everyday mountain through your windshield. It looks closer than usual, as if it's calmly approaching the city, intent on swallowing it up whole one day. For some reason, this thought fills you with a sense of security, and a desire to know what it would be like inside a mountain. In its belly, you think, as a poet might say, in the mountain's belly. The light's green. You move. You pass one of the first signatures that appeared in the city. A gutted container is gaping with its rusty entrails on display. You turn, get stuck in traffic. There's a crowd gathered round a huge red ball wedged between two buildings. A toy for giants, you think. Signature, the vandalists. Children giants. You start. Your guts hurt. Ignore them. You stop at the next light. To your right, the driver turns and looks at you. His jaw has gone slack, hanging a few inches above his collarbone. You can see that hunger in his eyes, alien, dangerous. You've seen it before. Green, you turn. Leave the cannibal stare behind and look straight ahead. You press on the gas pedal and speed into the grey, hoping this route still leads to your house. The house is empty. And wet, you think. For some reason it gives you the impression that it has recently rained in there. You stand at the door and peer into the darkness. It's not absolute, never is. An army of lights blink in mute conquest of the black. The Marshal Coffee Maker, the Lieutenant Microwave, the Answering Machine Cadet, silent and messageless. You flip a switch and the army's obliterated in a brilliant flood. On the fridge, there's a pink post-it with the phone of your favourite takeout and the words, I'll be late, XXX. You wander in your empty house and your feet take you to Christopher's room. The buzzing sound this time catches you off guard and the heat flares up in your sternum. You collapse on your son's bed. You think you collapse, but you merely stumble a little and sit on the mattress, one arm supporting you, the other looking for the thing that's incinerating you from within, breaking the fucking laws of physics. Isn't fire supposed to go out in the void? Thinking you've been cheated 
and certain now that you are dying, that this truly is your last hour, you muster the courage to walk to Christopher's desk. Another army of lights here, more advanced. Blindly you look for pen and paper. It doesn't matter you can't see anything. All you want is to leave a message to your son. If you can't hold his hand for one last time, then to leave one word at least for him to find and say, My father thought of me. In his last hour I was on his mind, and this is his message from beyond the grave. His message for me. You finally find both pen and paper, and take heart in this small victory. You're happy, even though certain that you are dying. You sit at the desk, ready now to write. Only the words escape you. What to bequeath to your child. How to sum up your experience. How to conclude your existence. The pen touches the paper, but it can't write on its own, and maybe you are not dying after all. The flame has subsided somewhat. The pen leaves a faint trace of ink on the paper, and maybe that is enough. You get up and leave the room. The army of lights barely enough to make the sweat on your neck gleam. You drag yourself to the living room and sit on the couch, palms first, then the small of the back, then shoulder blades, head. That's all. Alice. Alice thought all this was pretty normal. All right, it wasn't stuff you'd see every day, and there was definitely more weirdness than usual lately, but she'd found out at an early age that anything was possible. Nothing was too strange to happen, happen to you. No misery and no happiness too great. I know, I know, I'll never forget. She'd learnt the sun can go out without warning in the middle of the day. A star can fall into your soup while you're eating. Dad had taught her that before. Nothing is too far away from your every now. Neither parents who are swallowed by the mountainside all of a sudden, nor a building covered in grass, smack in the middle of a city, or a rain of dirt, or a giant ball wedged between two buildings, or dogs that turn into men, and men that turn into dogs. What did a signature change, a mere signature, when anything could happen? Alice walked past the gathered crowd and elbowed her way to the bus stop. Lately it had been impossible to go anywhere without putting up a fight. No matter where you were going, you had to plough through this soup of warm, aphasic bodies, violently, anywhere you could, with nails and knees and teeth. It felt like the population had suddenly multiplied, or as if all the ghosts of the city had reclaimed their flesh and bone, or as if everyone had decided to go out at the same time. Adults, children, babies, the elderly. Everyone except Granny. Granny is always at home, Alice thought. On the bus, everyone was silent. That was another trait of the new times. People no longer spoke in public. You could hear a few inarticulate expressions of awe and the occasional whisper at the most crowded parts of the city around the constructions and the signatures, but the conversations, the casual chit-chat, the loud voices, all that had ceased. Even the platitudes, the empty exchanges, which all they really said was, I am here, I belong here, I'm a human being just like you, perhaps even better than you, but I won't hurt you. I want something from you and especially your non-violence. Even if they only spoke about the weather, or health matters, or family, even those who were extinct. 
Alice had grown up subtitling the vapid words of the everyday. The, oh my, that dreadful rain, became the same raindrops fall on us both. And the, I found a great piece of lamb at the farmer's market, said, I'm a human being, not an animal. I eat animals without even having to kill them myself. The good mornings always meant, I'm alive, and so did the good evenings. The good nights were... I am still alive, and the see you tomorrow almost always sounded like, I hope to be still alive then, because no one believed them any more. The kids always met at one of the many abandoned construction sites in the northeast suburbs. The area was full of them. They stood like stripped skeletons, cadavers revealed, making the city look like an elephant graveyard. Alice often imagined the buildings moving slowly, crossing the city from the centre to the periphery with heavy, lethargic steps, and finally gathering here to stand, to grow foundations, to die. The boys were already there. Christopher was sitting cross-legged on an upturned crate, his leg jerking, his hands in his pockets, his hood hiding his hair and a bit of his forehead. Mark was standing near the edge, hugging his arms, and looking out with that familiar, restless look in his eyes. The wind made him shiver. "'I saw another one today,' said Alice, climbing the steps to the third floor. They gathered around the box they used as a desk. Alice spread the city map and started looking for the location of the red ball she saw on her way there. Christopher gently pushed her away. "'Maps are so last year, darling,' he said, and pulled a small device out of his backpack with the speed and dexterity of a magician. "'Is that you?' Mark asked. "'Yep,' Christopher said. "'Bought it yesterday. It has GPS, too.' Christopher put the device on the box and showed them the map of the city. He'd marked all the places where the vandalist signature had appeared until then— the kids had been at it for months, scouring the city, tracking the group strikes with the diligence of a historian, and a sense of conspiracy, perhaps. As if the vandalists shared with them, how would they put it? How had Mark put it at one of their first meetings? A kind of exceptional familiarity. Where did you say it was? Christopher asked. Alice scanned the electronic map for a moment and then pointed. Here, she said. It was a gigantic red bull, like a very big toy. People were staring at it like a bunch of brain-damaged cattle. How original, Christopher said, his eyebrows raised. Our neighbour was Mulby's dog, Mark said, looking away at the artificial skyline. Alice turned her head so fast her neck cracked. What did you just say? They came and took him with an ambulance yesterday, but he was already dead. His dog pierced an artery in his neck. What's it called? The carotid? Like it was some kind of prey. Like, oh, I don't know. A deer, maybe. Like it was a bloody deer. Alice touched Mark on the shoulder. He turned and smiled at her, but his eyes seemed unfocused, absent. I'll go see Ellie at the hospital tomorrow morning, Mark said. Wanna come? We can look for new signatures downtown. It'll be fun. Alice nodded. I'll come. I'll tell Grandma tonight. I'm down too, Christopher said. He put the gadget back in his backpack. Then he took Mark's hand and held it tight. Alice looked at them, holding hands like that. We're inside the elephant, she thought, without knowing why. It was warm, anyhow. 
Alice walked into her house. It was quiet. The living room was illuminated only by the TV screen. News flashed mutely on her grandmother's face. Crowds looking at the city change around them with sheer amazement. Eyes empty, underlined by dark, hungry circles. Silent beatings whenever the situation was derailed towards the primitive, and people turned bloodthirsty against their fellow starers, police spraying them with pepper and water. Granny, I'm home. The woman didn't react. The red ball and a signature on the screen. Then a flashback to the most recent events. A building covered completely in grass. A palm tree in the middle of the highway. Colour gushing out of a crack in the concrete. Alice approached and kissed her grandmother on the forehead. I'm not going to school tomorrow. Most of the teachers have stopped coming in anyway. I'll go to the hospital with the guys to see Ellie. Okay, Granny. The woman kept looking at the TV, her face blank. Then she made a noise, like a sigh coming straight from her call. Okay, Alice said. Okay. She caressed the woman's hand. She thought of saying something more, but then changed her mind and went to her room. She didn't turn on the lights. In the morning, Alice woke up with a sense of worry mixed with joy. A joy about to break out and sack her like a city, turn her into something wild and ecstatic. She looked at the mirror and thought, I have Mark's look on my face today. Maybe today I am Mark, not Alice. She laughed. It seemed absurd, even if not entirely untrue. She met the boys at the bus station next to the Red Ball. The gathered crowd was still there, never changing in its self-preservation. As soon as one person left, someone else took their place in the dumb worship of the ball. "'Let's walk to the hospital,' Mark said. "'It's not far. The bus won't help, even if it does come. All the streets are packed.' They took the highway west. They walked in the middle of the street, trying to bypass the thickest parts of the human soup around them. Alice's worry grew, and so did her joy, until she was about to burst out laughing as she made her way through the crowd. "'To your left!' Christopher cried out. "'Look to your left!' She turned. Christopher was running towards the Houses of Parliament. She thought she saw something glimmer in the sunlight. She took Mark by the hand and ran after Christopher. It was a lake, deep and clear-watered, in the middle of Parliament Square. The crowd was already gathering there, too. Some were laughing. Others tried dipping their feet into the water. It's warm, a man yelled. It's wonderful. The water's wonderful. It sounded like an invitation. Christopher started undressing. Come on, what are you waiting for? He shouted to his friends, taking off his T-shirt. Alice and Mark exchanged a sideways glance. The boy shrugged. Maybe the world will end tonight, he said. What have we got to lose? They ran into the lake screaming. Their underwear clung to their skin. But who cares? They didn't. Neither did the crowd nor the lake. It didn't even cross their minds to look for a signature. They accepted things now. Not only Alice, but all of them. That's what the world was like now. A lake that materialised out of the blue in the middle of a city was nothing more than an excellent opportunity for a good swim. Jude. We're on duty today. Pause. 
Jude balanced the receiver between her ear and her shoulder and lit a cigarette. She inhaled as deeply as she could. Then she blew out the smoke, admiring the dirty shutters of the storage facility. "'You aren't going to talk to me, are you? "'How long has it been since you stopped talking to me? "'Sometimes I think that's what our relationship is now. "'Me calling and you not talking. "'Me talking to the void until the world ends. "'Are you there?' "'Pause. "'I might start doubting you exist.' She shut her eyes tight. She turned to the wall and pressed her forehead to the cold plaster. Do you exist? Nothing. Anyway, I just wanted to let you know we're on duty and I don't know when I'll be able to call again, that's all. And that the mountain seems awfully close today. It's weird, isn't it? Whatever. I guess it's because of the wind. The atmosphere is so clear today. Anyway, I've got to go. It's crazy down here. Talk later. Talk later. Right? She hung up. She took another drag on her cigarette and threw it on the floor to keep company with the rest. I need to quit smoking, she muttered. Ellie hates it. She popped two mints into her mouth and sprayed some perfume on her clothes. She smiled. <laughs> You're talking to yourself, Jude. Talking to yourself. Ellie was lying with her back to the door. "'Good morning. How's my favourite patient today?' Jude took a chair and sat next to the girl's bed. "'You were smoking,' Ellie said. "'I can smell it the minute you walk in.' She turned to look at her. "'The mints were a nice try, Doc, but I've got a pretty good nose.' Jude frowned. "'I can't get anything past you, can I?' "'Do you think the mountain looks like it's closer today?' the girl asked. Jude stood up and walked to the window. "'You notice too?' It's weird, isn't it? Ellie shrugged. Is it? So you've heard about what's been going on lately? What? The dogs? Sure. We got TVs here, you know. What's your attitude, young lady? I'm still your doctor, Jude said, a comical glare in her eye. Yeah, for the past three years. Congratulations. Amazing job. Jude stuck her tongue out, and so did Ellie. Jude walked back to the bed and ran her fingers through the girl's hair. "'Are you feeling any better, then? Any changes?' "'No change. Don't worry. If I need you, I'll ask for you. Promise. Promise. Okay, then. I need to get back to the jungle out there. Thanks for the shelter.' Ellie crooked her lips. Jude called that the Ellie smile. "'No problem. Whenever you need a place to hide, you know where to find me,' the girl said. "'I'm not going anywhere.' At the emergency room, Jude was greeted by a crowd of people verging on one breakdown or another. There was a guy with an ugly bite on his arm, an old man in a wheelchair, his face tilted to the side, drooling on his collar. A girl standing next to the entrance, furiously scratching herself. "'I'm swelling!' she said over and over again. "'I'm expanding! I'm blown up! Blown up! I'll fly away like a balloon! Take off!' Nothing seemed to be happening to her. For now she looked firmly tied to the ground. Next to her a clean-cut yuppie holding his chest as if he was having a heart attack. He could still flash derisive looks at the girl, though. Just a panic attack, then.' 
Jude walked past the crowd and headed towards the head nurse office. She was about to pull on the door when the floor got to shaking. She lost her balance, scratched her knee on the wall and fell down. She hit her shoulder hard. The ground still shook. It rained things all around her. Picture frames, pieces of plaster, a fire extinguisher crashed on the floor right next to her head. The lights went out in a gush of sparkles. Jude thought she heard a collective moan coming from the emergency room. Did she care? She didn't, really. Didn't care about her knee or her shoulder. Didn't care about her vows. The first thing that crossed her mind was to run to Ellie. The second was to call, to see if the silence at the other end of the line was all right. She climbed to her feet and turned round. She crossed the emergency room again. The balloon girl now floated near the ceiling. The yuppie was gone. She ran to Ellie's floor, climbed the stairs, three at a time. The power was down. An alarm sounded in the background. Someone shouted. People ran. Jude burst into Ellie's room to find her in Mark's arms. Next to him, Christopher, and a girl whose name she couldn't recall. Ellie, are you hurt? Is everyone okay? Ellie shook her head. Jude did a quick check and everything seemed normal. That calmed her a little. Until the next earthquake. The shaking made the windows vibrate, almost cracked them. Mark threw himself on Ellie to protect her with his body, with his body and his restless look and his wet hair. Why is his hair wet? Jude wondered, while the ground was still shaking. The earthquake must have lasted longer than a whole minute. We need to get out of here, Ellie. Can you walk? Jude asked. I think so. I'll carry her if I need to, Mark said. They left the room and headed towards the escape exit. The stairs leading to the lower floors were partly collapsed. The only way to go was up. To the roof, Jude said. Let's go to the roof. The door to the top of the hospital was open. Christopher and the girl were the first to get out, then Mark, with Ellie in his arms. Jude heard Christopher say, Dad? And then a phone rang. What's a phone doing here, she wondered. But there it was, a phone hanging on the wall next to the door. It must be for me, she thought. She was sure of it. My silence is calling me from the other side. She picked up. Hello? It was her silence, her white, white noise. Are you okay? she asked. There was an earthquake. Two, actually. Pause. Still not talking to me. Even now? She looked outside and saw Christopher talking to the yuppie from the emergency room. She thought thick, dark drops started falling from the sky. She leaned on the wall, closed her eyes and placed the receiver on her heart. Is my heartbeat audible, I wonder? She peeked outside again. I think the mountain really is closer today, she said into the phone. I guess we won't talk again soon. She let the receiver fall and went out to the light and the rain and the wind. The children and the yuppie were standing at the edge of the roof. Christopher had hidden his hand inside the man's standing next to him. Ellie was supporting herself on her brother, and her back looked as if she were smiling. A real smile, not the crooked Ellie smile. How long has it been? Jude wondered as she walked closer. She stood next to the girl whose name still escaped her. The raindrops hit her hard in the face. Jude held out her palm and saw it smeared with something dark. What's that? she asked. It's dirt, the girl said. It's just raining dirt. The Mountain 
Peter and Christopher were holding each other's hands. How long has it been since I last touched him, they both thought at the same time. They fixed their stare on the mountain and held their breaths. Ellie was smiling. It had been months since she last saw the city from above. She didn't recognise it, and that made her smile even wider. A trip, she said out loud. Mark understood and tightened his embrace. He still had that restless look in his eyes. Alice closed her eyes and felt the rain against her face. Is this what it was like when the mountainside swallowed them? She wondered. She opened her mouth. Let it fill with dirt. Jude took in the city sprawled beneath their feet. There was a lake two streets down, its water slowly turning to mud. Two tigers turned onto the central highway. On the rooftop of the building across the hospital, three teenagers were admiring the view, holding hands. Their eyes met for a moment. One of them smiled at her, perhaps. Then, a burning giraffe running through the city, and the mountain closer than ever. And welcome back. I hope you found that story as challenging and intriguing as I did. I liked it quite a bit, even though the style was in very stark contrast, one might even say precise opposition, to the 19th century realist boat anchors that have been holding down my nightstand of late. To go from Theodore Dreiser and Henry James and William Dean Howells to the strangeness and dreamlike non-linearity of today's work is not unlike plunging into a pool of freezing water after wallowing in a lukewarm bath. Jarring, not entirely pleasant, but certainly bracing. Feedback this week is for episode number 371, The Fairy Ring, by Joe Pitkin, read by Steve Anderson. Commenter Child of Tyranny quite enjoyed this story, praising its off-kilter coffee shop vibe, who doesn't love monocle-wearing baristas, and noting that it admirably illustrates some age-old facts, to wit, that seeing the truth behind things can be enlightening and frightening, and it can most definitely hurt, and that once you have the truth, you have to do something with it. Just holding it isn't of much use. If you can see the danger but are unable to act, you won't save anyone, even yourself. Wonderful comments on this, as always. I'm always impressed by how thoughtful our listeners are, not to mention how generous. And both of these admirable qualities can be demonstrated by visiting podcastle.org, where you can leave a comment of your own or make a donation that will help us pay our authors and continue to bring you the best in fantasy fiction week after week. And now a couple of announcements. The first is about Artemis Rising 2. Just as we did in 2015, in 2016, Escape Artists will again celebrate Artemis Rising, a special month-long event across all three Escape Artists podcasts, featuring stories by some of the best female and non-binary authors in genre fiction. Podcastle is now open for submissions for the entire month of September 2015. Who can submit? Anyone who identifies as a woman to whatever degree that they do. Non-binary authors are also welcome and encouraged to submit stories. Send us your best fantasy fiction between 2,000 and 6,000 words, and please follow our usual submission guidelines on how to format your story, and then submit through our special Artemis Rising submittable portal. 
For more information, please visit podcastle.org and get writing. Second announcement. We are looking for narrators who are Kenyan or Kenyan Asian. Now, just to be absolutely clear, we are not looking for people who can do a Kenyan accent. We're looking for narrators who are actually Kenyan or Kenyan Asian. So if that's you, or if you know someone who fits the bill, please drop a line to editor at podcastle.org. And as a reminder, at this time, all escape artists, narrators are volunteers. And that's it for this time. On behalf of all the vandalists here at Podcastle, editors Graham Dunlop and Rachel Jones, slushers Arun Jiwa and Sarah Goldman, audio engineer Peter Wood, and forum moderators Talia and Osikat, thank you for listening. Until next time, this is M.K. Hobson, leaving you with a little poem from W.B. Yeats. I made my song a coat, covered with embroideries, out of old mythologies from heel to throat. But the fools caught it, wore it in the world's eyes as though they'd wrought it. Song, let them take it, for there's more enterprise in walking naked.